Well, good morning, brothers. Good morning. Glad to be with you again this morning. This is one of the days I really look forward to and the times I look forward to is being with you guys. I don't get to talk to everybody every week, but uh, it's sometimes just seeing you get to say hi is uh, an encouragement. Before uh, we really get into our main passage this morning, I, I want to begin by looking a little bit at the broader structure of Mark chapters 6 through 8. And this, this may seem just a little bit academic uh, for us, but it won't take long before, before we start to see how actually practical and beautiful Mark's decision is to have structured the gospel the way, way that he did. We're going to see here, we've got a feeding of a multitude, 5,000, back in Mark 6, 31 to 34. And this morning, we're going to see another feeding of a multitude, supernatural feeding, taking just a few fishes and a few loaves of bread and being able to feed thousands of people with a lot of leftovers. So those two things were there. And 6.45 to 56, then right after they did the feeding, they crossed the lake. And then they crossed the lake again in uh, chapter 8 after the feeding. Once they get to the other side, there's a dispute with the Pharisees. I, I think I spoke on one of those disputes back in Mark 7 and 1 earlier uh, back in November, December. And, and then when they get to the other side of the river or the lake over here in chapter 8, there's another dispute with the Pharisees. And then in 24 to 30, there's this discussion about bread. And then in 8, 20, 14 to 21, another kind of discussion about bread after having fed the people with so few loaf, loaves of bread. And, and then there's a healing that follows in 7, 31 to 36. And then we get to chapter 8, 22, which we're going to look at this morning. Those are my last verses, 22 to 26. There's another very significant healing that we're going to see. And then I believe it's Hunter next week uh, is going to be doing the 27 to 30. We've got this confession of faith then, but we also had a confession of faith back in 737. So there's this really parallelism. As you look at 6, 1 through 30, uh, 737, that whole section of scripture, and then parallel that over here with chapter 8, verses 1 through 30. And the only reason I really call your attention to that is, is just to see the artistry of what Mark and the Holy Spirit together were, were doing in, in writing this gospel that I believe was particularly geared toward a, a Gentile audience. And when, when we look at the bigger picture of Mark's gospel itself, we see that Mark is the shortest of all the gospels. It has 16 chapters, and it covers roughly a period of three years, pretty much the last three years of Jesus' life, his public ministry leading up to his crucifixion and his resurrection. Chapters 1 through 10 cover those three years. Okay, then, then chapter 11 begins with Jesus, what they call sometimes the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where he comes riding on the colt of a donkey there. People are throwing their coats down before him. They're yelling, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and we, we call that what? We call that Palm Sunday. That, that's what we celebrate on Palm Sunday. And so then the next Sunday after Palm Sunday is what some people in the culture call Easter Sunday. I don't like Easter so much. I like to call it Resurrection Sunday. Um, but we're talking here chapters 11 through 
16 cover about eight days, right? Sunday to Sunday. And so you've got five chapters focusing on that last week of Jesus' life. You've got these 10 chapters or 10 or 11 chapters here going on through the first three years of Jesus' life. One of the questions that, that I think comes up is we, we see this, all four Gospels record the feeding of the 5,000, but only Matthew and Mark mention the feeding of the 4,000. So Mark is the shortest of these four Gospels. We've seen how little real estate in terms of the Bible he actually occupies. And it kind of begs the question to me, why did Mark include two feedings? He didn't have but about 10 chapters there that he was working with. Why, why would he take up space in something that to me almost seems redundant when I read it the first time? When I'm just looking through there, I say, you know, he's already proven that he can turn fishes and loaves of bread into enough food for 5,000 people. Why then go to talk about 4,000, which is a less number of people, just two pages later? I think, I think that's a... A valid question, and um, I really don't think it's about Jesus having enough supernatural powers to multiply food. It's more than a demonstration of his supernatural powers. Mark must have had a different purpose, uh, and I think the Holy Spirit inspiring Mark to include both of those feedings must have had another purpose in mind. So I, I'm going to suggest a couple of purposes today that I believe are there couple of reasons that I think Mark found it important to include the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 together in his gospel, so close together in his gospel. And I want to go back to read a portion of last week's passage that I think gives us a bridge uh, to one of those, and then I'll continue reading verses 1 through 10 of chapter 8. So I'm, if you want to read in your Bibles with me or your devices, 725 to 31... And then we'll go into 8, 1 to 10. But immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, but yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Sliding over to chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, they had nothing to eat. He called his disciples to him and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and they have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. Some of them have come from a far way. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. 
And having blessed them, he, set, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate, and they were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Okay. Now, we, we, we know that Mark's target audience was predominantly Gentiles. He was writing to Jews and Gentiles, but he really wanted to make sure that the Gentiles understood what he was talking about. And we know that because he's explaining a lot of Jewish customs, kind of parenthetical expressions throughout his gospel there. And he's trying to help them understand some Jewish customs, some Jewish words, traditions. And, and so Mark has a, a concern here that the gospel make it here to the, the Gentiles. And where, where do these events take place that we, we, we've just read about? Well, I, I'm, I'm going to shamelessly pilfer Hunter's maps. Okay. <laughs> I did not see a copyright on those puppies, so I stole them. Um, and, and so the, the Syrophoenician woman was, uh, was up higher uh, in, in, in this area, up here between Tyre and Sidon, uh, around here. That, that's for that first little bit about, you know, even the dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall under the table part. And, and then Jesus went all the way up then to Tyre, which was like, to Sidon, which was about 20 miles further up than, than Tyre. Then he comes back down, and, and he's coming through from here back down to here, take the boat over to here, get out to the Seda, they come up to Caesarea Philippi. So this is the Decapolis region that we're going to be, be looking at here that he came down to. He, again, he was up over here, came down across the sea, and then over to the Decapolis, which means the ten cities, right? Uh, he had been here before. In fact, this is kind of interesting. Uh, when we... we taught on this passage earlier in Mark chapter 5, and you remember that was something we often call the Gerasene or Gerardine demoniac. This is the guy who was in the cemetery, kept breaking his chains, had a demon, had this legion of demons, right? And Jesus cast them out, they went to the pigs, went over the cliff, killed them. Okay, well, we don't know for sure if that guy was a Gentile or not, but this, this region, this whole Decapolis region is much more... Gentile. This is more like Greek Gentile. This would be more like Roman Gentile up here. And, and so we're, we're seeing both of them there. And one of the interesting things is when Jesus cast the demon out of that demoniac and then he was clothed and he was in his right mind, Jesus says something in the Gospel of Mark that he, I don't think he says anyplace else. He tells that guy, go back to your home. The guy wanted to follow Jesus. He said, no, you can't follow me right now. You've got to go back to your home. But tell everybody what I've done for you. Now, we see something else in Mark throughout that's called this messianic secret where he's saying, don't tell anybody what I've done. But in this particular case, in that Gentile region, Jesus says, go and tell everybody what I've done. So the Seraphonician woman and her daughter happened in that Tyre Sidon region, or Sidon. And then when he went to the Decapolis, also predominantly Gentile area. And our passage, our focal passage we just looked at, 8, chapter 8, verse 1 says, in those days. Well, we know, we know that the last place that he was in those days was over here in the Decapolis. 
So we're thinking that that feeding of the 4,000 must have happened over here somewhere in this region of the Decapolis, although Mark doesn't specify the exact town, but that's where the 4,000, the feeding of the 4,000 took place. Now, both of those feedings, the miraculous supernatural feedings, would remind the readers of how God provided manna or bread from heaven to his covenant people in the wilderness. That was part of the exodus of God's deliverance. And we, we know that the whole idea of the wilderness uh, was important. So in, in both of these feedings, one in chapter 6, the one in chapter 8, we find that it was a very remote place, a desolate place. Mark is using this imagery of the exodus and this feeding of the, the multitudes of people to point back to how God fed the Israelites in the wilderness, in the desolate place, in the remote area there, far away from civilization in places where there would be a, a, a lot of uh, places to get or make your, your bread. And, and so, uh, like Moses delivered the Israelites from slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt, Jesus is presented here as one who came to deliver both Jews and Gentiles from slavery to sin wherever they happen to live. Now, I confess that I'm a, a missionary by training and a missionary at heart, and so I, I tend to view the Bible through the lens of a, of a, of a missionary. Uh, you know, you say if you're, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, so this is really big to me. You know, I, I, this, what we're seeing here in terms of the Great Commission and the global expansion of the gospel, th this is really kind of geeky, exciting. But Jesus took his teaching and his healing and his demon-exercising ministry outside the confines of Israel's borders to non-Jewish people who were not a part of God's covenant people, not a part of God's covenant family. And, and just as he had compassion on the lost sheep of Israel, if you go back to Mark 6, he said he saw the 5,000 people and he had compassion on them. You look here in Mark chapter 8, he saw the 4,000 people and he had compassion on them. Jesus had the compassion for the Gentiles just as he had compassion for the Jews. And he made it a point to go out of his way to go to those Gentile lands on two mission trips, which are two of the last things we find in the Gospel of Mark before we get down to that Passion Week uh, that's coming up in just a couple of chapters. And, and so when Jesus told that Syrophoenician woman, let the children, okay, that would be the Jewish people, right? Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs, she responded, yes, Lord, but even the dogs get to eat the children's crumbs under the table. And what we're seeing here is Jesus did heal that woman's daughter of the demon, cast the demon out. And we're seeing this principle that we find throughout the rest of the New Testament in the book of Acts to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Okay, that, that, that's something very different than in the Old Testament. Okay, in the Old Testament, we have what we call a centrifugal kind of mission where God says Israel's going to be such a great nation, blessed so much, I'm going to bring the kings and queens of others like Bathsheba from around, and they're going to come see what I'm do doing in Israel. But God never told people in the Old Testament to go and talk about him. The only time that really seemed to happen is when they had been unfaithful to him, and then they were in exile. And, and so he shows the people of Egypt there is a God, 
He shows the people in Babylon, there is a God of the people of Israel. But the idea was that Israel was to be such a pinnacle of light upon a hill that people would come to Israel. But in the New Testament, we see that flipped around. And we see this centripetal kind of a mission expansion going out where there's this intentional going out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then out to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so when Jesus fed the 4,000 in the Decapolis, the Gentiles were not just getting the crumbs that fell from the table before the dogs below. They were getting the same exact meal that Jesus prepared for the 5,000 Jews in Mark chapter 6. That's big news for a missionary. Now, it's, it's big news for a Gentile. Now, all of us are, I don't know if any of you guys are Jews or not. My, my wife has 8% Jewish blood. I, I don't think I have any. I, I'm glad God took the gospel to the Gentiles. Let me just say that, because without it, I would not be here. Now, Jesus was showing the Jews and the Gentiles that he was the one that God had been speaking to Abraham and Isaac about back in Genesis, Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 18, Genesis chapter 22, Genesis chapter 26, when the Lord said to Abraham and Isaac, in you, in your lineage, in your seed, all the families and nations of the earth shall be blessed. And Jesus was revealing himself as this great blessing from the seed of Abraham and Isaac and through the lineage of David. He was modeling for his 12 disciples what he would later command them to do which is to go make disciples of all nations, of every ethnic group, every people group on the face of the earth. Jesus was showing his compassion and his commitment to deliver every one of these people groups from sin and its devastating effects. Now, I suggest that the inclusion of the Gentiles into God's covenant plan is one reason Mark wrote of both supernatural feedings of the multitudes. But I believe there's at least one more big reason for doing so. So let's read verses 11 through 21. Mark chapter 8, 11 through 21. The Pharisees came and they began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply, and in his spirit he said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them. He got into the boat again and went to the other side. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread. There were lots of basketfuls just there. They forgot them uh, to bring anything. They had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? 
Now, as we look back at these parallels, we see here uh, that when they got to the other side, you had the dispute with the Pharisees. They crossed, and they're discussing about the bread. We're going to get to the healing in, in, in just a couple of minutes. But um, we, we see that there are all these basketfuls left over in both feedings. And this is kind of an interesting tidbit, that there's a different Greek word for basket in the first feeding than there is for the basket in the second feeding. And so you think, well, there were less people, you know, maybe less leftovers here with the 4,000. But the basket with the 4,000 is a big old hamper basket. It's much larger than the 12 baskets that were in the first feeding. This is the kind of basket that in Acts chapter 9.25, we find that they lowered Saul over a wall in a basket so that he could escape. It was big enough for a human being to fit in. So there was a lot of leftovers there in those four baskets. Seven baskets of leftovers, but they were much larger baskets. Now, after the feedings, they crossed the lake. Soon after, the Pharisees came to oppose and make demands of Jesus. And then there's this discussion about bread, and there, there was the healing that we'll get to. But Mark does more than just record two supernatural feedings. You know, it seems like his Yogi Berra would, would say it's, it's deja vu all over again. Um, but there's so much parallelism between those two events. Um, because his disciples had been with him, we, we still need to say, why, why then would we have this? Why is there so much parallelism? His disciples had been with him for the previous three years, and they had seen all the people that he had healed. They'd seen him cast out demons, even demons they couldn't cast out. They, they had seen all the thousands of people he had miraculously fed. They had seen him walk on water. They had seen him calm a storm with his voice, just the words of his mouth. They had seen him teach like nobody else had ever taught. They'd seen him pray like nobody else they'd ever heard. And they'd seen and heard all of those things. And they had been as physically close to Jesus as anybody could be. And sometimes they think, if I could have just been there with Jesus. Well, these guys were there with Jesus. And they still did not fully recognize who he was or why he came. So that, I believe, is one of the second purposes that we're seeing here for Mark putting these two different feedings in here and these two very parallel scenarios because they didn't get it the first time and they didn't get it the second time. The big idea is no matter how much we've seen with our eyes, how much we've heard with our ears about Jesus, we can be blind and deaf about who he really is. Guys, this is a very sobering truth for me, and I, I, I think for, for each of us here, because we know that most of the Jewish religious leaders, who we would think would have had eyes to see, they saw the same evidence, but they were blind to it. Jesus they asked Jesus for this cosmic sign. They, they, they wanted something more than healings and exorcisms and, and feeding people. They wanted something coming out of heaven to show that God up above was having his stamp of approval on Jesus. And Jesus says, no, you're not going to get such a, a sign. And he left them in their blindness. And then Jesus warned his disciples who had seen and heard more than anyone he has this kind of cryptic phrase, you, you need to avoid the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Most every time in the New Testament we see the word leaven, 
it has a negative connotation. It's this idea of an evil influence that is somehow going to corrupt and carry people away from the truth. Now, most of the New Testament uh, mentions of leaven that that are figurative are, again, all negative there. So Jesus doesn't explain exactly what this leaven of the Pharisees or the leaven of Herod is, but the concept seems to be that it's this spiritual blindness. It's this unwillingness to receive and recognize who he is. The Pharisees did not recognize Jesus as the promised Messiah King that they had read the scriptures and memorized and knew all about. Uh, Herod, the earthly ruler, was blind and unknowing as to who Jesus was. We recall earlier, he thought Jesus was John the Baptist, resurrected from the dead, come back to haunt him. Jesus' penetrating questions seemed to be a warning to his disciples. Yeah, guys, you're not seeing much better than the Pharisees. You're not seeing much better than Herod when it comes to recognizing who Jesus is and why he came. So now, now we get to that miracle. Um, well, we'll get to there to say, let's look at the questions a little more carefully here. In 17 and 18, Jesus' questions are more like accusations. He's saying, you guys still just don't get it. So be, before I read our passage, I, I want to begin looking at the... Oh, what have I done? I've skipped a page. Um, here we go. They lack understanding... They got hardened hearts. Remember, the heart is the mind and the will and the emotions. They don't see, they don't hear, their memories forget. And so that that makes Mark's inclusion of the next five verses extremely hopeful for the disciples and for you and and me. Let's look at 22 through 26. And, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter into the village. This is the only time, guys, that we see Jesus doing a two-stage kind of healing. But there's a lot of hope in this healing for those of us who might have hearts that have been hardened and eyes, but we don't see, and ears, but we don't hear, and memories that all too quickly forget the things the Lord has done for us in the past. This healing... After the initial touch, the man's vision improved, but it wasn't clear. People were like walking trees. So Mark included this two supernatural feedings, two mission trips to Gentile lands, followed by two touches of Jesus to bring clear vision to a once blind man. And and do you recall what the previous miracle was at the end of chapter uh, 7? It was Jesus put some spit in the guy's ears and he gave him uh, a deaf man hearing. So this whole thing is sandwiched between a deaf man hearing miracle and a blind man seeing 
miracle because the truth is sometimes we have eyes but we don't see and we have ears but we don't hear. And Jesus is connecting his ministry actually with stuff the prophets had written centuries earlier. Jeremiah warned, hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. Isaiah 42, hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see who is blind but my servant or deaf as my messenger whom I send. He sees many things but does not observe them. His ears are open but he does not hear. Ezekiel 12, 2, son of man, title normally given to Jesus as well, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see but see not, who have ears to hear but hear not, for they are a rebellious house. And brothers, um, I believe that all too often, I know I'm a member of that rebellious house, uh, having ears to hear and not hearing, having eyes to see, having a memory that has many lapses of the faithfulness of my father. And I believe that Jesus and Mark, one of the disciples and us to know that we need repeated lessons and touches by Jesus if we're going to recognize him for who he truly is and if we're going to see ourselves as we truly are. Jesus is God in the flesh who not only rules over nature and disease and demons in the entire universe, there's still more. Jesus actually doesn't just rule over it, he came into it. Came into our corrupted and broken world where eyes don't see and ears don't hear, and, and he gave himself as a sacrifice so that we could have new hearts and new eyes and new ears, so that we could have a Holy Spirit come live inside of us to remind us of all the things that Jesus had taught, to remind us about the truths of God, not just to rule over us, but so that we might know him for who he is and that we might love him. So uh, again, the big idea, no, no matter how much we've seen with our eyes or heard with our ears about Jesus, we can be blind and deaf to who he really is. So guys, this question this morning, do you have a burning desire to live for God's pleasure even more than you want to live for your own? Have you been overwhelmed lately by how much God has demonstrated his love for you so that you can, you can honestly, sincerely, even maybe emotionally say, I, I love you, Lord. I, I don't just believe in you. I, I truly love you because no one has loved me like you have loved me. And if you don't have that desire you don't have that love. Mark chapter 6 through 8 offer us just a tremendous hope. Uh, we don't have to be stuck in that place from today moving forward for the rest of our lives. There, there's hope. Be, because even if our ears aren't hearing and our eyes aren't seeing and our hearts aren't loving, the, the wonderful news of the gospel is that Jesus is willing to touch our eyes and our ears again and again and again if that's what it takes for us to recognize him as the ruler and the lover of our souls. And in his grace, we have a God who will keep teaching. Keep teaching 
and keep touching our minds to understand. And sometimes it may seem like he keeps teaching us the same lesson over and over again. And the reason is because we just haven't gotten it. We're just not getting it. And he continues to call us to follow and to believe and to trust. And he continues to call us to love him and to serve him. And he continues to call us to make disciples. So as we close out this morning, do you need a fresh touch of Jesus this morning? And if you don't today, chances are you probably will very soon because we have to keep coming back to him. The disciples who had walked with him for three years needed the fresh touch. They needed their eyes open more. They, they, they needed their ears to hear. The blind man needed it. And I know my eyes and my ears need continual adjustments to recognize and remember who Jesus is and what he calls me to do. Guys, I, I want to pray for us, but I, I do want to recognize, too, that we read an awful lot about healings in this book. And I don't believe that we, my theology, I don't have a theology that says we can demand God to heal. And I don't have a theology that says if I just muster up enough faith, God will heal. And if he doesn't heal, it's because I didn't have enough faith. That's not where I come from. But I do believe that God is on the throne And I believe he has compassion on his people. And and I believe that he can still heal today. And and I believe that there are times that he wants to heal in this life. And I believe there are times he's just going to let people go to get a new body that will never get sick and never tire, never, never have disease again. I'm not smart enough to know which is which. But I do know that he's called us to pray for one another. I know we got some guys here today that are, that are going through scary times with cancer, with other uh, life-threatening illnesses. We've, we've got some guys who have wives who are going through those same kinds of things. And uh, we, we have just a lot of un- uncertainty about some health issues. So uh, if, if you're going through cancer treatment or biopsies or you have a wife that is, would you just raise your hand this morning so that I could look around, guys, see these guys. Okay. Now, would you spend the last minute here praying for God to intervene and to show his compassion and mercy through physical healing for them? And if you need a second touch, a fresh touch, you, you say, I don't even know if I've got the Holy Spirit living in me. I've said the right things. I believe the right stuff. I believe the Bible's the word of God. But when I've said my prayers and I've done anything, I, I've never felt a change. I don't, I don't know that I've really encountered Jesus. Um, let's, let's talk, okay? Uh, don't, don't stay in that place any longer because you don't have to. Uh, 